0: If you would, please stand in reverence to the reading of God's Word as we look at Hosea, Hosea in chapter number 2. Hosea chapter 2 and verse 14 and verse 15. The Bible says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. And I will give her her vineyards from thence and the valley of Acor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, and as in the day when she came out of the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Father, I just pray you would glorify yourself and speak into our hearts this morning. And Father, we thank you for your wooing work. And we give you the praise for what you're going to do in this time together. In Jesus' name, And all God's children said, Amen. You may be seated. Now, I want you to kind of get an understanding of the book of Hosea. Imagine, if you would, God comes to you as he did with Hosea. And he comes to Hosea, and he says, Hosea, I want you to do something. I want you to take unto yourself a wife named Gomer. And I want you to marry her. But then the Lord gives this caveat. Or if you will, puts a little extra information in there. He said, but I want you to understand when you marry her, she will be unfaithful to you. Matter of fact, she'll absolutely turn on your love. She'll turn her back on you and she'll completely forsake you. And so how would you like to be Hosea if God told you that? I mean, we would all look at that and say, well, wait a minute. Why would we do that? Well, God tells Hosea why he asked him to do it. You find this in chapter 1, verse 3, and verse 4. And what it says is this. God says, for this is exactly what Israel has done to me. So in other words, he said, Hosea, I want you to take Gomer unto yourself. She will be unfaithful to you, just as I took Israel unto myself, and Israel was unfaithful to me. In other words, God was going to use Hosea and Gomer as a literal illustration to Israel of how God saw Israel and how Israel responded to God. So Hosea was going to, if you will, have the role of God. Gomer was going to have the role of Israel. And Gomer was going to be unfaithful, but Hosea was going to remain faithful to Gomer even in her unfaithfulness. Now, that's the backdrop of the book of Hosea. Now, you say, well, preacher, why is that important for us? Because that's exactly what happened when God saved you. The Bible says that you were wedded to the person of the Lord Jesus. The Bible says he's the bridegroom. You and I are the bride. And can I tell you today, when God saved you, God knew everything about you, past, present, and future. And God knew when he wedded you to his son that there were going to be times where you and I would be unfaithful. Jeremiah uses this term. He says of Israel, he said, You have committed spiritual adultery. And when God would use that term, it just simply meant this, that Israel would turn their affection on something else instead upon the Lord. Have you ever had a time when you've had more affection for something else than the Lord? And if you sit here and say, well, I've never had that time, you're not telling the truth. We've all had those times. And so, this is the backdrop. This is what this is. Now, when you come to chapter 2 of Hosea, you find that God begins to pour out his chastisement and his judgment upon Gomer, i.e., picturing Israel. In other words, this is what God was going to do to Gomer, but it's really what God was going to do to Israel. And you find these therefore statements all the way through uh, chapter 2 up to verse 14. And he, he lays out one judgment after another judgment after another judgment. Now, when you get to 14, everything changes. Now, look at verse 14 with me, and I want you to see first the unexpected grace of God. You find here in verse 14, he says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. Now, that therefore is the key phrase here because what it says is that God is pouring out judgment, God's pronouncing judgment one after another after another, and as you're reading chapter 2 up through 13, you're you're almost hanging on the edge of your seat wondering, all right, what next judgment is he going to pour out? And then all of a sudden, God changes, and he said, therefore, I will allure her. And what happens is God totally changes the tenor of what he's saying. And what he begins to do is instead of now continuing to pronounce judgment after judgment, God now announces, I will woo you back to myself. How many of y'all glad for the wooing work of God? If you're saved today, you've already experienced the wooing work of God. Because I promise you today, you could not be saved today unless God drew you to himself. The Bible says no man can come to the Father unless the Spirit of God draws him. And so you and I need to understand that just in our salvation, God wooed you unto himself. But I've got some good news for you. That after God saves you, he never ever stops wooing you unto himself. He woos you into deeper intimacy. He woos you into dealing with things in your life that are hindering your fellowship with God. And this is exactly what God said Hosea he was to do, that he was to stay faithful to Gomer. He was to continue to pursue her, continue to woo her, and never, ever stop until she came back. Now, we know the end of the story. Hosea ended up having to buy Gomer off the slave market. And you say, well, how does that a picture because that's exactly what God did with you. You and I were bound by sin. You were in chains. You were slaves to sin. Romans chapter 6. Jesus Christ paid a price you could not pay. And when God saved you, he got you off the slave market. And he set you free. And so what we find here is just this unexpected grace of God. Because sin you would think would not bring grace. But can I tell you, grace can only operate when sin is there. Now you say, why is that? Because grace is the unmerited favor of God. In other words, if grace only come when, when there was no sin, then we could earn it. But I got news for you. There's nothing you could do to earn grace. And there's nothing you can do to gain grace. And so God shows his grace when the, you at least expect it to come. I promise you the day God showed me I was lost and saved me, I wasn't expecting that that day. When I got up that morning, I promise you, I did not get up that morning and say, well, glory, today God's going to speak to me, God's going to draw me, and God's going to save me. I had no idea God was going to do that. And that's what grace is. And so this is that, therefore, that unexpected grace of God. These verses picture, if you will, the Lord as romancing Israel back to himself. Now I want you to look at this unexpected grace with me. It begins with the invitation of grace. And when he says here in verse 14, Behold, I will allure her. The word here is translated in the Hebrew this way. To seduce, to entice, or I like this one the best, to court. It literally means One who is in love with another, courting that one back to themselves. It's the idea where God, in his faithfulness to Israel, whom he loved, who has now played the role of an unfaithful wife. And God said, I'm not going to stop courting you. I'm not going to stop enticing you. To come back to me. Now, here's the reality God will not force you to do that. But I promise you this if you're saved today, God will never, ever, ever stop wooing you. Now, you say, Well, preacher, I'm, I believe I'm saved, but God don't woo me anymore. I got news for you, you've never been saved. Because God never, ever stops wooing those that are His. Now, the, the reality of it is this that here is Gomer, i.e., Israel. And here is Gomer has now forsaken Hosea as Israel has forsaken God, and yet God brings that therefore, and he says, but behold, in the midst of all the judgment, in the midst of all the chastisement, in the midst of your unfaithfulness, I will court you to myself. I'll woo you, and I'll never stop wooing you. What an amazing truth. Look, secondly, not only the invitation of grace through his wooing, but the intervention of grace. Now you say, what do you mean the intervention of grace? Well, look what it says here in verse 14. And will bring her into the wilderness. Now you you read that and you think, well, wait a minute. How's that going to help get Israel back to himself? I mean, you think of the wilderness, you think of desert places, dry places. Matter of fact, in chapter 2, verse 2, God even allures to uh, uh, Gomer being being brought like the wilderness. In other words, in dryness, without necessity, without drink. And you think, well, the wilderness is judgment. The wilderness is bad. Well, listen, in most cases, that's the case. But in this case, God meant it for something glorious and something good. And you say, why is that? Well, if the picture here is marriage, that how would you agree today that when you married, you entered into a covenant? So when did Israel enter into a covenant with God? In the wilderness. You say, where? At Mount Sinai. You say, what took place? God gave the law. You remember what happened? God gave the law through Moses. And as God gave the law through Moses, Moses read the law. And the people responded. And they said, we will do it. Look at it with me. I want you to see it. Exodus chapter 24, verse 7 and 8. And he, being Moses, took the book of the covenant, read it in the audience of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it upon the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made concerning all these words. So why the wilderness? It was the place of revelation. It was the place where God gave the law and God gave the covenant. And in light of the holiness of God seen through the law, the children of Israel said, we will do it. We will enter into a covenant with him. When did you enter into a covenant? The day God saved you. You say, well, how do I know? Because if you're truly saved today, you came to a place of surrendering unto him by faith through repentance. And whether you knew it or not, you said at that moment that I am no longer myself. I belong to him. It's not my way, but his way. And you said at that moment, you said that I belong to him. And you entered into a covenant relationship with God. And so what did, what did, why did God say, I will woo you, I will allure you, I will draw you, court you back to myself, and I will take you into the wilderness? Because here's what God has to do sometimes. God has to bring you back to the time and the place where you were saved. And God has to remind you of the covenant you made in surrendering to him. And sometimes God has to break you like God had to break you when he showed you yourself in your lostness. Why? Because only in brokenness will you ever realize that your only hope is surrendering afresh and anew to the Lord. How many of you agree today, you and I were surrendered when God saved us, but sometimes we like to take the control of the steering wheel. And God has to woo you back, and God has to draw you back, and God has to remind you of that covenant relationship, that moment in repentance and faith where you surrendered to him, and God says to you, hey, listen, you remember that day. You need to, fresh and anew, surrender yourself again. It's a place of revelation. But not only was it a place of revelation, the wilderness was a place of realization. Because what did Israel learn about God in the wilderness? Well, can I ask you today? Were there times Israel got hungry in the wilderness? Was there times Israel got thirsty in the wilderness? What did they find out about God in the wilderness? That God and God alone was sufficient for them. They learned in the wilderness that they had to be absolutely dependent upon God and God alone. So what would God do wooing them and then taking them back to the wilderness? Here's what he would do. He would remind them not only that covenant relationship that came through surrender, but here's what he would remind them of. That without me, you're helpless and you're hopeless. I'm the only sufficient one for you. I provide for you in every way and in everything and every need. I am the answer. So what did Gomer have to learn? That Hosea was God's provision for her. And you and I have to be taught that lesson over and over again. Because so many times we come to a place in our spiritual walk where we think that we have the right to act independent instead of dependent. Let me ask you a question. Who dictates what you do in a given day? Who dictates what you're going to do tomorrow, next week? Let me put it one step further. Who dictates what you're going to do tonight at 6 o'clock when service starts again? You say, well, I live in a free country. I can make my own choices. No, you gave up that right the day God saved you. The Bible says you're not your own. You're bought with a price. In other words, here's what he said. Sometimes God has to bring you back to the time where you yielded to him, and he has to remind you that I am your soul sufficiency. Can I tell you the truth? He's all you got, but he's all you need. He's all you got, but he's all you need. But how many times in the wooing work of God does he have to bring you back and remind you of that? Because I make my independent choices that appease what I want to do. I mean, I'm here to have a good time, am I not? That's the way the Word looks at it. But can I tell you today, happiness for a Christian comes through holiness, not through independence. And so... He woos the children of Israel. He said, I'm going to woo you. I'm going to court you back to myself. I'm going to take you into the wilderness. And there, I'm going to intervene on your behalf. And I'm going to bring you back to that place you surrendered. Bring you back to the place that you were utterly dependent upon me. But then notice the third thing he says. The intimacy of the grace of God. And he said, and speak comfortably unto her. Now, what's this word comfortably mean? A better translation would be this. I'm going to speak up on their heart. I'm going to speak to their heart. In other words, I'm going to speak in intimate ways to them, to their heart. Now, how many of you remember the days when you were dating your spouse? Y'all raise your hand. It won't hurt you, I promise. I promise you God won't strike you down for raising your hand. Y'all remember those days? How many of you agree today that you had one objective in courting your wife or courting your husband? And that was to win his heart or her heart. I mean, that's what you were doing. I promise you, you put your best foot forward. I promise you, when you got married, she found out things about you she had no idea about because you wasn't about to tell her those things. And don't, don't, listen, ladies, don't, you're not off the hook. Us husbands learned some things about you that you didn't tell us either. Are y'all with me? Say amen. So what is God saying? He said, I will speak comfortably unto them. I'll speak to their hearts. Now you have to understand, God's speaking about the future work in Israel here. And what he's saying is this, He said, "Listen, under the law, I speak to them, but under the New covenant, I'm going to speak up on their hearts or in their hearts. Because what did God say in Ezekiel? He said, "There would come a day, Israel. There'll come a day when I'll give you a new heart, and I'll write my laws up on your what heart." In other words, you won't be motivated from the outside anymore. You'll be motivated from the inside because of my spirit living within you will write my law upon your heart, and the holiness that I want you to live in will be lived out through you because of him in you. But in the Old Testament, it was God said they tried to achieve. God said they tried to achieve. Now listen, if you live your life trying to be motivated by what some man says instead of what God does in you, you're in trouble. That's no different than Israel. But can I tell you something? When God saved you, I promise you, if you've been saved today, God gave you a change in desire. You say, where did that change in desire come from? He wrote it up on your heart. He gave you a new heart. And now, all of a sudden, the Spirit of God in you begins to be your motivation through His love and enables you to obey. And now, it's, listen, I will try to do it. No, no, no. I can because not me but Him. And God said, I'll speak upon your heart. I'll speak intimately unto you. There'll be a change in the relationship. Now, remember, God's speaking to a people that have prayed the the role of an unfaithful wife. And he said, I'll allure you back. I'll woo you back. And I'll speak to your heart. How many of y'all have had times where you've walked in an unfaithful way. And the Spirit of God, through His Word, wooed you by speaking to your heart. I remember when I was lost, I would sit in church all my life. I grew up in church all my life, lost as a goose in a windstorm. And I'd, I'd sit in church, and the preacher would say things, or my youth pastor would say things. And I'd listen to them and I remember one time, I I gave this illustration this morning. My mom and dad were in the service this morning. And they remembered this. One time I was in youth, and I was still lost. And my youth pastor told us that the damage of of certain types of music. And I went home, lost. And I took it. I'll never forget. My mom and dad said, what are you doing? I took every one of my records. Yes, I'm that old. Some of y'all don't even know what a record is. It's about this big around. It's black and it's vinyl. And there's a little needle that went on it. And y'all, y'all, y'all know what, a, you guys know what a record now is? Okay, good. All right, so, so anyway, I took them, took them out back broke them. You say, why'd you do that? Because I was motivated externally. But listen, it wasn't in my heart. You say, how do you know? Because I go to school the next day and act like a heathen and speak like a heathen. No change in my heart. I was just trying to do the religious thing. But aren't you glad today that when God woos you as a child of God, he speaks to your heart? So what do we find here? We find the unexpected grace of God. Won't you see secondly and lastly this morning the unfathomable grace of God? How many of y'all would agree today that when God saved you, it's unfathomable to you? I mean, why would God show grace to any of us? How many agree God knew everything about you before you ever were? Would you agree God knew everything that you were going to do and say after he saved you just as much as he knew everything you were going to do and say before he saved you? So you tell me why God would show you grace and me grace knowing that. Unfathomable to me. By the way, that's the reason grace is what it is because you can't earn it and you can't achieve it. So in other words, God shows this unfathomable grace. Now you say, well, how does he show this? Well, look with me here. Notice the restoration of grace. Look at verse 15. And I will give her her vineyards from thence. In other words, once I allure her, once I woo her back to myself, once I bring her back to a place of brokenness and covet relationship, once I bring her to the place of understanding they're dependent upon me and I speak upon their heart, I will give her vineyards from thence. What does it mean? I'll provide for her. I'll make her fruitful. Where? In the wilderness. You say, well, why is not I talking about Canaan? Well, listen, his perfect will for them is Canaan, and that is dealt with later on in Hosea. But here is what he's saying. Even when I take you back to the wilderness, I will make you fruitful. Now, you think planting a vineyard in the desert. How's that going to work? Well, can I tell you, for common sense of man, it don't work at all. But aren't you glad when God gets in it? In other words, God says, I can make you fruitful wherever I put you. So what you find here is God restores unto Israel what they lost. Because remember, in their idolatry, God took them out of the land of Canaan. In their idolatry, God put them back into captivity. And God said, I will you back to myself. And when I woo you back to myself, I will restore unto you what you lost. Now, here's the reality. If you're saved today, the Bible says you have all the provisions available unto the Lord has been made available unto you. The problem is we don't walk in those things very much. Why? Because we are still living independent of God sometimes. But here's what the reality is. When you and I come back to that place where God woos us back, and in absolute brokenness and surrender, we come to him in faith again as a child of God, then here's what happens. God now allows the Spirit of God to start releasing these things in our life. And you start seeing victory happen in your life, peace happen in your life. All these glorious things of the provisions of God begin to manifest themselves in your life. Now watch this with me. So not only is this unfathomable grace of God dealing with the restoration of grace, it deals with the repentance due to grace. Now here's the phrase that got me started on this passage. Now, you have to take over the I will down to this phrase. Look what it says. And I will give her their vineyards thence, and I will, as how it reads in the Hebrew, the valley of Acor for a door of hope. When I read that phrase, that's what got me started on this passage because it made no sense to me whatsoever. You say, why didn't it make sense to you? Because what the valley of Acor represents. You say, well, preacher, what does it represent? It's mentioned three times in the Bible. Here... Isaiah and Joshua. So turn with me, if you will, to Joshua where it's mentioned. All right, how many of you remember the event? God gets Israel across the Jordan. First place they come to is what? Jericho. All right, so they come to Jericho. What was God's battle plan? He said, walk around the city till I tell you to shout, and when I tell you to shout, shout. Well, that's a good battle plan, isn't it? And what happened? The walls came down. Jericho crumbled. Israel, easy victory over Jericho. The city that kept them out of the promised land for years that they were scared of. But here's the way the map is set up. From Jericho into the upper plains of Canaan or the major majority of Canaan, there's this little valley that they had to travel through to get to the rest of their inheritance. Today, there's an old road in that valley called the Jericho Road. Now, you folks that have been to Israel with me, I have not taken you on that road. There's a reason for it. I went on that road on a tour bus in 1999. About halfway down the road three ladies were laying on the floor scared to death you say why because the valley is is of such that on the edge of that road is a cliff that drops straight off and on the other side of the road is a cliff that goes straight up and the road makes s turns. you ever been on a road that makes an s turn with a car In other words, you make that S turn as you're going up the mountain. You look down and you see the road you just came off of. Well, this made S turns and we're in a charter bus. And when he went around one of those S turns, part of the back wheel of the back right tire was off the road over the cliff. I said, no more. Are you all with me? All right, now listen. So Israel went from Jericho... Through this valley, but in the valley was a town called Ai. And they came up to this little town called Ai. Now, listen, we always talk about the sin of Achan. That's what the primary focus of it is. But we forget about the sin of Joshua. You say, why? Because Joshua came up against Ai, and Joshua said, hey, guys, listen... This is a small town that doesn't, nothing, I mean, it don't even compare to Jericho. So let's just take a small number of men, go up, and we'll take it. What did Joshua not do? He didn't ask God how to take it. If he would ask God, what would God say? Well, Joshua, don't go. You say, why would God say that? Because you got sin in the camp named Achan. You need to deal with the sin before you go. Joshua didn't ask, so guess what? Joshua sent the men. He sent the men, and what happened? They were utterly destroyed. So Joshua comes back to God, and he complains. He said, God, I don't understand. Why would you allow this to happen? I'm paraphrasing. Here's what God said. Get up off your face. Well, wouldn't that encourage you? And he told Joshua there about Achan. Now, with that being said, look with me here. As we look at this passage together. Look at verse number 24. "'And Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the garments and the wedge of gold, and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his asses and his sheep and his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them unto the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, "'Why hast thou troubled us?' The Lord should trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones, burnt them with fire, after they had stoned them with stones.'" And they raised over him a great heap of stones unto that day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger, wherefore the name of the place was called the Valley of Acor unto this day. Why was it called that? Because Acor means trouble. None's words, it's a valley of trouble. Now listen to what God said. God said to Israel, I will take the valley that you know as the place of trouble, the place of your defeat, the place of your sin. And I will make it a gate of hope. Does that not intrigue you? Listen. The valley of Acor would become a place of hope. God said, I'm going I'm to take it from what you think it is. I'm going to make it a place of hope. Why? because the valley of Achor was all the way the pathway of hope. What was the only way they were going to uh, be able to inherit the rest of the land of Canaan, the upper plains of Canaan, the fertile ground of Canaan? They had to go through the valley of Achor. And here's what God said. God said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to woo you unto myself. I'm going to bring you back to the wilderness where you made a covenant with me and surrender. And I'm going to bring you to the place where you remember your dependence upon me. And I, I, I God, I'm going to speak upon your heart. And oh, when I speak upon your heart and you respond, I'm going to restore and to you the fruitfulness of the land, he said, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have to first take you back to the place of your defeat. I'm going to have to take you back to the place of your sin. I'm going to have to take you back to the place where repentance was required, as Joshua had to deal with Achan. And he said, when I take you back there, and you come to the place of repentance of your idolatry, he said, then what troubled you, what caused you defeat, it'll become a place now that is a gateway into all I have for you. Boy, we've thrown repentance out the window today in church. Everybody thinks it's a negative term. Everybody says, I just want to be happy. Just say what will make me happy. Well, the Bible says without holiness you can't be happy. And the only way of holiness is repentance. And so God sometimes has to take you back to one of your failures. Back to one of your defeats, back to your sin that you never repented of, and caused you to have to deal with that first. And then what it, it was a valley of trouble, every time you thought about it, brought irritation to your mind, brought uncomfortable to you. Now he says, "I'll make what was your greatest defeat." and I'll make it your greatest hope. 1999, I went to Israel for the first time. In the year of 2000, I went back. Both times, I went with a couple that were friends of me and Lisa's named Iris and Dwayne Blue. In 2000, they did something that, can I just be honest, got me in the flesh. Y'all looking at me like, preacher? Y'all never been in the flesh. Okay, I'm just making sure. Y'all make me feel like I'm the only sinner in here. <laughs> I mean, it gnawed at me. I so mad. When I got back, I was pastoring my first church. God was manifesting himself. I mean, we were having people, little country church. When I started there, running 40 people, God was saving people every week. I mean, it was amazing what God was doing. Everything was going glorious in the church, and I was absolutely miserable. I was sick of ministry. I was sick of pastoring. I was discouraged, probably, I was depressed. Nothing going wrong in the church. God's saving people every week. You couldn't get to that church with a GPS. If you tried to plug it in, it'd say, where's that? I'm serious. Out in the boonies. One day I was sitting in my office at the church. And I was, I just, I was so disgusted. And I'll never forget, I got up out of my desk, I went in front of my desk, I laid in the floor, face first on the floor. And I began to vent unto the Lord. And I'll never forget what I said. Do not, I do not encourage you to ever say this. Are y'all hearing me? Say amen. I laid on the floor, and I said this to God, and I'm in it. If this is all ministry is, kill me and take me home. Now, sometimes when you say that, God will take you up on it. I kept praying, and I said, God, I don't understand why this is happening, why I'm feeling this way. I mean, you're blessing in the church, everything's going glorious. I I mean, I just don't understand, Lord. Please, just show me. If, If there's something else... If something else is causing this, show me. But if this is all ministry is, I'm done. When I got done praying, I was was squalling. Remember, I was laying on my face. I pushed up like you were doing a push-up. Yes, I used to be able to do those. And I pushed up. And when I pushed up, I'm telling you, I was scared to death because I didn't know if I'd get up. And I got up and I walked to my desk. And when I walked to my desk, I did something that I've never done since, nor do I advise you to do. I was so discouraged, I didn't know where to read, what to read. And I just took my Bible, and I laid it down on my desk, and wherever it opened, I was going to start reading. It opened to the passage where David was having a conversation with Jonathan. And David said to Jonathan, Jonathan, your father's going to kill me. And Jonathan said to David, and I quote, You shall not die. Only God. And then I started praying, and the Lord showed me why. And he took me back to my valley of Acor. He took me back two years. And the bitterness I had towards Iris and Dwayne Blue. Because they did something I didn't like. I had Iris's phone number in my phone. I called her. And I said, Iris, I need to talk to you. She said, Mac, she said, I, we, we thought you'd fallen off the face of the earth. I've not heard from you in two years. And I said, yes, I know, Iris. I said, that's what I need to talk to you about. And she said, well, Mac, I've got... Two minutes, she said, I'm fixing to walk up on the stage at Glorietta Conference Center in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and fixing to give my testimony to 300 leaders, ladies, leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention. She said, what is it? I said, Iris, I need you to forgive me. She said, for what? I said, Iris, you and Dwayne did something on that trip that greatly hurt me and greatly offended me. And God brought that to my mind this morning that that's what's wrong with me. And I need an obedience to God. I need you to forgive me. And she said, Mac, what did I do? I said, I said, don't matter what you did because if I was resting and if I was resting in the Lord, you could have done something 10 times worse than that and I shouldn't have got offended. Y'all do understand God is in control. And she said, well, Mac, you're, you're forgiven. I'm sorry, you're forgiven. I hung up the phone, and it's like, it's like somebody took a weight off of me. I mean, peace just began to flood my heart. I can't, it, listen, God had already saved me, but it was like I got saved all over again. Five minutes later, my phone rings iris had walked up on stage in front of 300 ladies leaders of the southern baptist convention in the ladies ministries and she said ladies i'm sorry i've got to do something please forgive me she walks back off of stage calls me back up on the phone and she said mac i need to i need to talk to you if i did something to offend you i need to know what it is because if i did i need your forgiveness before i begin to share my testimony with these ladies And I said, Iris, I promise you, it wasn't anything you did intentional. And I won't get into the details because you need to get back out there. But I promise you, it's over. It's done. I forgive you. You forgave me. We're good. She said, okay. She went back on the stage, shared her testimony of God's saving grace. Now listen to me. Is there a valley of acor in your life? And God's got to take you back. He's wooing you. He's wooing you with his love, but he's got to take you back. And he's got to take a place that was hard and hurtful, maybe something that was defeat or something that was discouraging, and he's got to bring you back to that place that in repentance and with, in trust, you could deal with it and you never have to look at it as a valley of trouble anymore. And it becomes a gateway of hope. Not only do you find here the repentance due to grace, but the response of grace. It says here in 15, and she shall sing there. The word sing can be translated in the Hebrew 40-some times as respond. She will respond there. When I bring her back to that place that so gnawed at her for half a millennium, always thinking about it in defeat and trouble, and I make it right. She'll respond to me. In other words, I'm going to woo her, and she's going to respond. The rejoicing in grace. How will she respond? As in the day when she came out of the land. As in the days of her youth. You remember when God did that work with Egypt? Israel was under taskmasters' bondage. They began to cry, God, you forgot about us. And God worked to work in the plagues where Pharaoh let the people go. You remember how they responded? They began to sing. To this day, there's five songs that Israel sings in relation to celebrating what God did, delivered them from Egypt. To this day, they sing it. A gateway of hope. But lastly, the rest and grace. Now, through the valley of Acor, now becomes the gateway, the door of hope. Now they can enter into the promised land and Canaan and all the fruitfulness of the land. And they can just be at rest in God's provision. Are you at rest? Or are you troubled? God's provided everything you need for life and godliness. And you say, well, preacher, I feel more defeated than I do victorious. Then maybe God's got to take you back to your valley of Achor. Maybe God's got to take you back to the day he saved you when in brokenness you surrendered by faith unto him. But here's what I'm here to tell you this morning. If you're saved today and you're not at rest, I promise you, God is wooing you. And he'll never, ever stop wooing you. And if you're here today, you're not saved. And I got some good news for you. Maybe today's the day he woos you to himself for the first time. It's called the conviction of the Holy Spirit where you see yourself the way he sees you, lost and undone. I want to ask you today, is God wooing you? Let him do his work. If he needs to take you back and deal with something you've never dealt with, let him do it. If he just needs to remind you that I'm your everything and you can depend upon me and surrender to me, let him do it. But he loves you so much that even when we're unfaithful, he's always faithful. And he never stops wooing us. You obey God, Father. I stand absolutely overwhelmed at your love and your grace. And Father, how you wooed us when we were lost and how you continue to woo us in our salvation. Father, all you want us to do is rest in your provision for us, the Lord Jesus. Oh, Father, today, if you need to take us back to our covenant relationship and teach us surrender, if you need to take us back and teach us dependence, if you need to take us back and deal with something in our life in defeat or sin that we've not dealt with, Father, today, May the wooing of your spirit have its free work in our lives. And I'll praise you and I'll thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's children said,